we do love making podcasts at 11FS. And you know, this isn't our only one. If you haven't checked out our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider, then hop to it because we've published some of our very best ever episodes over the last couple of months. From the future of work to the biggest industry in InsureTech news, there is a topic in there for about anybody who wants to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Head over now to ii.11fs.com, that is ii.11fs.com, to start listing or just search InsureTech Insider on your podcast provider. Okay, let's get on with the show. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you Alibaba invests $3 billion in Grab and buys out Uber along the way. Klarna reaches a $11 billion valuation to remain Europe's most valuable fintech. And Microsoft digs up a data center they buried underwater off the coast of Scotland almost two years ago. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 463 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and today I am joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Jason Bates. How's it going, Jason? It's good. How are you doing? All right. I'm a bit of a sweaty mess today, I'm not going to lie. Like, I, <laughs> I thought I had enough time to jump. Like, Nigel's been, like, shaming me into doing more Peloton. So, like, I thought I had, like, 20 minutes, 20 minutes on the bike, 20 minutes to have a shower. Turns out I just had the first 20 minutes. So like, you know, it's good that we're doing this remote, everybody, is all I can tell you. So uh, how about you? you uh, I know, exactly. Well, it's not the sun. It's more than just my level of unfitness and being on a, on a bike, I think. But, uh, but how about you? How's your week been? Uh, it's been good, actually. Just lots of Zoom calls like everyone else, I think, uh, combined with drop-off of uh, my son and picking him up at school and a few different things. It's just, it's nice. I, I feel like uh, getting sort of settled into the rhythm of, uh, of the new family work life thing. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like suddenly it's quiet in the house again. Like, uh, like I've I've started to stray out of my office because like the kids are not there anymore and it's quiet, which is weird. So it's a whole new world, isn't it? Anyway, as is now normal, we are joined, albeit remotely, by some awesome guests. And first up, making her fintech insider debut this week, we have Victoria Roberts, who is the director of fintech delivery panel at Tech Nation. How's it going, Victoria? It's going well. Thank you for having me on the show. No worries. We know it's your first time, but we're like we're all friendly. Like this should be really good fun, I think. So, uh, and making a very welcome return. Uh, actually, I mean OG from episode one of FinTech Insider. We have Anna Herrera, who is the chief FinTech correspondent for Reuters. How's it going, Anna? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. No worries. Good to see you back. I mean, good to see you back on this side of the the pond as well. Like you're uh, making yourself at home back this way. Yeah, I'm back, but I can't really see anyone. So I don't know if it actually, I'll actually, I'm actually really back. I could be anywhere again. But yeah, you have to trust me that I'm here. Sounds good. Uh, I mean, when somebody says you're going to have to trust me, usually there's like something wrong going on, isn't there? But I'll trust you. Don't worry. That, that's we know true. It's you. You, you can see the very <laughs> untrustworthy background that I have now with the weird zebra. <laughs> Maybe I'm in Vegas. You never know. No, no, you see, after over a period of time, you get used to the sound delays of what's Asia like or what's the US like. You're, you've definitely got a, a UK <laughs> delay yeah. in the Zoom call. We don't have to wait seconds <laughs> before you start talking. 
Hmm. I, I love that. Just let's just start inserting in comfortable silences into podcasts. Like I feel like it will really add to the listeners. But uh, all right, guys, let's get on with the show. So this week we have uh, the first story over on Bloomberg, which is Alibaba in talks to invest $3 billion into Grab. So Alibaba, the Chinese e-commerce giant, is sole investor in the rounds and will spend a portion of the funds to acquire some of Grab's stock held by Uber Technologies as well. The deal may represent one of Alibaba's biggest bets in Southeast Asia since first investing in Lazada in 2016. The funding, about a fifth of Grab last known valuation of $14 billion comes with questions over the company's ability to live up to that valuation. I mean, what organization sort of isn't facing into that sort of conjecture in this period of time, I guess. But uh, so the, the world's biggest ride hailing companies have waged years of costly battles on each other's territories before they agreed to stay out of each other's core markets nothing like arranging who's going to have one market. That's never going to come back and bite you on the ass, is it? But I mean, what do you think to this one? Is this uh, an interesting, I mean, when you're Alibaba and you've got so much money, then you can start really sort of picking off other gigantic organizations and seeing what happens. But Jason, what do you make of this? Well, I guess Grab's the, you know, the perfect partner for them. They're in the right area of the world. Grab and Uber have this truce where Uber, I think, bought 23% of the stake in Grab at the time in order to say, well, we'll leave you in your part of the world and we'll stay in our part of the world. So it was definitely this East versus West thing. And Grab have done so much in terms of making real penetration into a variety of, of Eastern markets that I think it really makes sense when you've got commerce and financial services and now transport in the Alibaba you know, oligarchy. It's, uh, I think it makes sense. Mm. What do you think, Anna? I mean, so much is written about Alibaba over the last sort of 10 years of their, you know, ultimate taking over of everything. Is this just sort of part of the strategy, do you think? I just think it's interesting because we keep, again, we keep talking about, you know, what the tech giants are doing here and that they're in everything. But, you know, we have an example of, in Asia, it seems to be like, you know, we're seeing the future, right? Like I'm thinking, is Amazon now going to like buy stakes in Uber? I don't know. I'm, it's, it just makes me think of what's going to happen in the West. Um, but yeah, it's definitely them trying to be everywhere and in any part of your life, right? And you, I'm thinking more about Ant, but you know, you you can call an Uber or a, through the Ant app. So I'm guessing now maybe that will be grab or, or maybe you can already do that. It's, it's hard from here because you can't really use the app. So it, it's hard to know sort of what's happening and, and I guess really envision what the strategy is unless sometimes being a user is, is helpful in these things. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, actually, if they can start owning distribution for these things, so like you say, with Ant and with Ant's integrations in so many different things, then actually, if they own distribution for some of these capabilities and they're just moving you know, up or down the value chain, depending on which way you look at it, then it's a really interesting one. I know Grab have done a lot with sort of integrated finance into all of the things that they've looked at. So it is an interesting play for them. But uh, Victoria, what do you think? Do you think there's a sign of things to come outside of, of Asia? Well, I think when I sort of read this story, actually, I sort of thought stepping back, um, it really, it, it sort of shows the difference between um, sort of how 
sort of COVID and the current environment is affecting different companies, right? You've got all the smaller fintechs and the sort of scale-ups literally sort of trying to survive, having to flex their business models. And then you've got people like um, Alibaba, who've obviously got such um, significant capital reserves that they're sort of able to use this to do more of the sort of strategic plays, take their time. And, you know, it's really a great time to be getting into additional networks with uh, sort of more data customer acquisition capabilities on the last mile I think they're also quite involved in e-commerce in the region so uh, yeah it's a pretty strong uh, sort of strategic long play from them I think but uh, they've got the capital to stand out I guess. I think it's really interesting actually I guess building on Anna's point that we're almost getting to these general tech companies like and it reminds me a bit of General Electric you know, founded in, what is it, 1892, way back, Thomas Edison. But in the end, they got into aviation, healthcare, power, renewable energy, digital, manufacturing, VC. I mean, it was one of those things where the electrification of the world was coming along. General Electric was founded, and then using profits, they started to get into other areas and use their capabilities. And before you know it, they're, you know, this massive conglomerate. And I, I guess we're seeing that in different regions of the world with tech now, you know, Amazon starts in, you know, selling books, and then before long, they're doing everything. And Alibaba, you know, starts in, again, selling stuff, but before long, they're into insurance and finance and transport. And it's that um, conglomerate of the early 20th century, you know, into the general tech company, I think, that's interesting. Does that hold still in, in today's economy? And it's an interesting point, really, with why have we not seen financial services arguably stray outside of financial services? You know, we, we've actually seen, I mean, you know, because really the thing that's fueling that, as you say, Jason, is like a crazy amount of money, right? So banks have had crazy amounts of money. Why have they sort of been contained in financial services and not strayed out into something else? Not wanting to answer my own question there, but do you think GM, Alibaba are like, ridiculously customer-centric, understanding customer needs in terms of what they're doing, and applying that to when their industries just feels sort of obvious, really, doesn't it? It's like Google. You know, Google have a way of doing it. They can shine that light on whatever industry they want to, and and maybe that's the applicable thing to it. But what, what do you think, Anna? Why, why have we seen banks stick to banking? Regulation, maybe, right? With banks, you know, imagine already they're they're so big, they're too big to fail. If they venture out into something risky or, you know, there might be concerns from regulators. I mean, they're so regulated that whatever they decide to do, they need a nod, at least from the regulators. So imagine if like JP Morgan or City rolled up to the Senate and or like, They'd be like, hey, we've decided to go into like supermarkets. They wouldn't be very happy. And and we're seeing this the other way around, right? Like, you know, Elizabeth Warren is no longer running for president, obviously, but she's still a powerful senator. And she's she's she was running on a platform of splitting up, you know, and having Amazon reverse the deals. Um, so that that they and the acquisition that they've made. So I think that's the main thing, because like Tech firms in the end have kind of been able to do whatever they want for now. That's about to change, it feels. But um, banks have been watched more closely because they manage people's money. And obviously, you know, they can't take as many. They're perceived as not being able to take as much risk, although they have taken risk in the past. Yeah. Well, if, if anything, I mean, if I if I was sitting in a bank right now, I'd love me some retail. Like, like say, just, just because it's a lot less... Uh, regulated, you know, there's ways of doing those things from subsidiaries perspectives, but it is an interesting one, isn't it? Like you've had the time, you've had the success, you've had the money. And actually, you know, where we're seeing 
the Googles, the Facebooks, the GMs, the GEs stray into other territories. Banks are very kept to it. But Jay, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure that GE was straying out of its core. I think its core was the industrial revolution and manufacturing and how you do that at scale. And I might argue that actually Google's core is being able to do engineering at scale. You know, I don't know a company that can have so many thousands of the best engineers working simultaneously, releasing code day in, day out on such a wide variety of services. I think while the big conglomerates of the earliest 20th century really made the production line the thing, and then it was like applying the production line to everything, I think Google is a good example of a company that's made engineering at scale the thing and now we as in software engineering and now we're seeing software eat the world and therefore the companies that are the best at doing software and you know just in general can then move into those different areas so i do think companies start like you know like we talked to lisa gansky about kodak wasn't a photography company it was a chemistry company so it was great at chemistry and all of the things around film and if there were other chemistry things to jump into it was great Unfortunately, the future of photography wasn't chemistry. But I think software is a key part of all of this, hence why you're seeing the tech companies spread rather than you know, the financial companies whose core has always been uh, the financial engineering piece, the savings and loans, the traditional banking model. Yeah, it's really interesting. Victoria, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, so I think that's probably a sort of, I suppose, banks and the larger institutions aren't kind of, they have a reputation for being quite so agile. So that's probably part of it. But uh, the regulatory piece must be really key there, right? It's a, if you're a regulated financial institution, there's so much more sort of control over what you can and can't do. And um, I think there's rules around if you're a subsidiary of a bank that sort of really uh, sort of affect you as well, even if you're not a banking institution, you know, if you're sort of, you're then all kind of regulated as a bank. So that might be something that makes it harder. And it doesn't mean that banks probably aren't necessarily exposed to the success of some of that sector through the investments they make but in terms of actually holding the reins day to day there's probably some reasons why that's not um not always come to the fore it does and and as you say i mean that does shape sometimes in terms of the approach that organizations can actually take to things because if you're gonna build something greenfield and you own it as an entirety then it has to go through all of your governance and processes and structures, which means it applies to your existing governance and your existing culture. So actually, that can be a real challenge sometimes for those organizations to, you know, there is no moving fast and breaking things when uh, Chris Willard might come and knock on your door in a couple of weeks' time if you've, if you've actually broken something. So, uh, but anyway, we probably could talk about this one for the entirety of the hour, and we probably should move on. But um, the next story was over on the Financial Times. So it is that Klarna's has a new valuation, and it's $11 billion. Uh, good number there, I have to say. Uh, Klarna is looking to wreck pretty big havoc, uh, in the words of their CEO, on the payments and banking industries after the Swedish Buy Now, Pay Later group was valued at $11 billion. Klarna's chief executive and co-founder told the Financial Times that it was would use $650 million to expand further into the US ahead of a probable IPO there. Uh, he added that the payments industry was a dream for an entrepreneur, thanks to the outdated technology, incumbents that have lost focus, and high barriers to entry. Shots fired there from their CEO, which is interesting. Uh, we actually managed to hear from Alex Marsh, who is the UK lead for Klarna. So let's hear from him now. So obviously, this is really exciting news for us and, and a huge endorsement of our vision at Klarna. And we're really thankful to our customers, retailers and partners for their support. 
Uh, we have become that rare thing, a decacorn, and that obviously places uh, a high expectation on us as a, as a business. But there is so much potential to continue to disrupt the retail payment space. And particularly given our multi-product offering, there's a lot of opportunity just simply rolling out that product set across all of our existing markets. And in addition, we're looking to open into new geographies as well, and also investing in our offering to further develop our neo banking and platform services. So take a step back. Ultimately, the North Star for us as we look into the future is to stay focused on fundamentally changing the shopping and payment experience for consumers whilst continually driving value for our retail partners. That's super interesting. Um, the CEO sort of went on to say uh, that retail banking is moving from being a balance sheet play to a tech play, Jason, which really sort of lends itself to what we were just saying on the last story. I mean, the other thing about this really is like, oh my God, I'm getting desensitized to like really big numbers, aren't you? Like, it's kind of a bit weird. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, decacorns like all over the place, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I'm torn on this. On one hand, we talk to clients quite a lot about uh, about the way that there's a lot within fintech and financial services that belongs at the point of need, and you should never be going to a banking app for it. And consumer lending to buy something expensive is one of those things. You don't go to a, an online store, look at that, then go to your banking app to see if you can afford it, and then come back. Like APIs should connect these things together. And that goes the same for insuring that expensive item and paying escrow and getting refunds and loyalty and all kinds of things that have a kind of financial angle should all really belong at that point of need. So I think Klarna and Stripe are really good examples of companies that are really well set to take all of the financial services that belong around commerce, especially online commerce, and sort of wrap those up into something that everyone else can use. But on the other hand, Klarna's got to this valuation based on a buy now, pay later model, which is just not good for end consumers. You know, the whole sort of consumer credit economy is just growing and growing and people are buying on the never never and just, you know, carrying loans. And so part of it's like, it's great and it's amazing and there's a lot that they could do. But there is something unethical, I think, around instalment lending um, that is difficult to, uh, you know, to hold. Mm. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it's, I mean, credit, obviously credit cards have been along, around for a long time. But, and obviously from what they're saying, the angle of moving to the US, I mean, Sam Allwell says to us, it's like, you know, the US is a, you know, give me it immediately economy. Uh, I mean, Anna, you've just come back from the US. Do you think Klarna would, uh, is a, it's an itch that people have a scratch for over there? So they launched in the US ages ago and they didn't do well at all at the beginning. And the CEO has been saying for a couple of years now that they finally got the right angle, but they have strong competitors there, right? They have a firm, Afterpay's there too. So they are one of many. Supposedly they're doing really well. I find it super interesting that they keep calling themselves payments company. And they were saying it in both the clips. I mean, what you were reading from Sebastian and also what we heard in the clip that payments, I think they're trying to say we're not a lending company. Uh, but that's me being super non-cynical as usual, because obviously, you know, if you're perceived as a payments company, then you might not be regulated. But in reality, you are a lending company because you're getting people in debt. So obviously, it's, it might be slightly better than credit card debt because there's no interest in many of these cases, not all of them. But then what happens when you don't pay your loans, right? And then they give your loan to a collection agency or then whoever they've sold the loan to comes back and your credit score gets hurt. And it's hard again because you say it's unethical. But on the other hand, they could always come back and say, well, 
you have a very paternalistic view of lending. Who are you to say that person can't get the shoes that they want now, right? But, you know, it's it's very tricky because you can see both sides of, of this thing. I mean, they're clearly growing in the U.S. if they got all this money to keep going. Um, I'm One other thing that, you know, keeps sort of bugging me about this sector right now is that lending is growing, spending's growing, but <laughs> unemployment is also growing. Uh, so uh, what's going to happen when people start not paying their debts back? Like, how does this debt rank with all your other debts, right? Am I more, I'm probably more likely to pay back my student loans in the US than this. So I'll probably be like, oh, you know what? Who cares about like the shoes that I bought there? Let them come at me, you know? So I wonder what default rates are like. And, you know, there's so many questions around the sector. And I think just calling yourself payments company, payments company is not going to distract the regulators, especially if you're, also a DECA you whatever, DECA unicorn, whatever the new term is, right? You know, you have a lot of money, you have a lot of responsibility now, so they're probably going to start looking at you. And in fact, last week, last Friday, the UK advertisement agency said they were looking at them for, you know, they, they've received lots of complaints. Sorry, I went on a bit of a rant there, but... <laughs> no, it's it's really true. I think there is a, there's definitely a bit of a backlash with, with Klarna in terms of the positioning of some of their ads of like no interest and you know and actually it's going to be interesting to sort of see how those things uh, sort of shake up obviously you know we've had some pretty high profile issues with uh, lenders particularly around payday lenders in the uk with things like wonga um but i, I think the it, it's interesting and it's an interesting debate around whether the i mean we're going to get into a very ethical debate around lending and and, and credit you know and actually and it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, as somebody who likes the immediacy of shoes when I want shoes, then I'm going to buy shoes when I want shoes. But uh, how about you, Victoria? <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, Anna, I think the FCA would uh, agree with you. They've uh, they've just launched a uh, review into the unsecured uh, credit market that's apparently going to report back by uh, 2021. So I suppose, uh, again, I suppose that'll be looking at this tension between uh, exploitation versus empowerment, right? And um, I think some of it's quite um, cultural as well. I hadn't really sort of come across this sort of paying in three stages before I was um, was a student working in a, in a shop in Paris. And um, it was a very established practice in France that at the till, somebody could pay a third with one cheque, and then they could give you two postdated cheques that you would cash at a later date um, that would sort of go into the go into the safe in, in your in your shop and they would all sort of come out a month or two later. So um, I suppose if it's a practice that was happening anyway, what you've got with Klarna is a, an evolution that has, it's probably safer for consumers and for the um, the retailer because you've got a credit check, right? You've actually got something on the, on the spot that should be able to tell you whether it's more appropriate to enter into that with um, that customer. But um, yeah, I think sort of COVID and the economic um, environment that we could be fast approaching, it, it feels like the right time to be sort of just checking in on whether it's still the right thing for consumers mm, yeah it's going to be interesting that as you say the the sort of financial promotions uh, material that are around these things and actually how different regulators kind of see these things in different areas it's going to be going to be interesting to see what comes on uh, next on this one but uh, definitely uh, well done for those guys to get into such a gigantic valuation so far uh, jay do you want to close us out yeah, I think it's a really interesting uh, question that Anna brings up about that paternalistic protection, you know, versus the freedom to do what I want. You know, I've spoken to a few people in fintech recently. I, I had a, a sort of a career mentoring session with someone, and they really struggled with fintech as a as an area to work in because from the companies that they'd uh, gone and interviewed with and, and been working with, they found that actually the successful ones were those that were making money lending. 
basically. And so there's, you know, here was this person who really wanted to work in product and really wanted to make people's lives better and all of these kinds of things. But actually, the successful companies were all lending based. And those that were probably more virtuous uh, just, you know, weren't making the uh, the revenue that everyone else was. So um, as Anna was talking, I was thinking maybe it's a, uh, a cigarette style warning. You know, maybe there's something about uh, actually everyone is allowed to do this, but you need to understand how many people don't make the, this, um, you know, their payments back and what the implications are if you don't. And maybe something around open banking as to like how much debt are you carrying? I think the how much we're committed to spending month on month is something that still no bank really makes uh, evident. And I think I think there's all kinds of angles here around making that decision with all of the information that actually the general consumer doesn't have. They look in, they know how much salary they have, they know how much money is in their bank, but they don't really know what they're committed to month to month and, and how this all fit, uh, fits in. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, and that's a really interesting point, which is like, how many really virtuous companies are really successful if they start there? Uh, I mean, Bill Gates sold a hell of a lot of Windows 95 floppy disks before he started helping people out in Africa, didn't he? You know, like, so, you know, the kind of focus is almost like get money and then I'll help people. But like, actually, and that's difficult in the context of the the environment that people really want to work in, where it's like, actually, I want to, you know, do good and feel good about what I'm doing every day. But uh, especially in financial services, where ultimately, you know, the people who make money are those who have money. You make money off the people who don't have money. You know the the maturity transformation thing. It's like it's been there for a long time, but but there's there's something at the core there. I'm I'm sounding very. Uh, I'm obviously on my kind of left socialist rant uh, today. I don't know what's happened. <laughs> he has one of these days every week. Don't worry. Normal service will be resumed next week, I'm sure. But uh, all right, guys, we're, we're going to have to wrap up the first uh, part of the show. But we'll be back with you very shortly. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers bank-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions by being on a first-name basis with their customers, offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that really puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility, while your employees get cloud-based core-connected tools to offer service really at the moment of need. To learn more and explore the team's latest insights, head over to jackhenrydigital.com. Do you follow 11FS on LinkedIn? If you don't, well, you probably should by now, shouldn't you? We make video content over there that you don't want to miss out on. And we're starting not one, but two new live shows. On Tuesdays, we're going to be diving into the biggest industry news stories. And on Thursdays, we'll be grilling some of the biggest experts in financial services on really what they do for a living. You'll have the chance to ask your own questions and get them answered live on the shows by some of the best minds in the industry. Find out more by heading over to the 11FS LinkedIn page now.
Thanks, Anne, on with the show. Uh, next up, we have a story over on FinTech Magazine, and this is Tech Nation launches a FinTech pledge supported by the HM Treasury. So this is that Tech Nation is a growth platform for tech companies and leaders that prides itself on delivering coaching, content, and community required to produce successful digital ventures. Over 20 cohorts and 600 companies have successfully graduated from Tech Nation's growth programs. Alumni include Skyscanner, Dark Trace and Monzo. Uh, they have now received support from HM Treasury in its plan to drive growth in the UK fintech sector and its pioneering fintech pledge. In addition to HMT, the endeavor will also be supported by the fintech delivery panel. Uh, and on that point, Victoria, I think I should probably just throw to you and go, what's this all about then? Um, tell us a little bit more about it and why it's important. Uh, indeed. So the FinTech Delivery Panel brings together experts from across the UK to work together on initiatives that help FinTechs scale and create the uh, environment for future innovation in financial services. Um, and I think encouraging successful partnerships between banks and FinTechs is obviously a key factor here. You've done, done your own research on that at uh, 11FS, but uh, there's definitely a prize to be had for, for both when the relationship works well but I'm sure we're all familiar with the difficulties in uh, achieving this there's a certain irony when um, sort of successful partnerships I feel it's always quite near the top of um, both the uh, opportunities and challenges list in any fintech survey so it's important but it's not always that easy to get there so what does the pledge do the pledge sets a standard for the expected transparency and communication around working together and it really looks to sort of tackle that um, asymmetrical relationship that you can get sometimes so I've sort of seen this firsthand when I was working in a scaling in tech, and uh, you're never quite sure if you're sort of presenting to the, the tense person um, in the insurance company because uh, you know they just sort of want to hear about the latest innovations or whether you're about to kind of get the green light to build uh, the app. So um, this is what we're looking to uh, to sort of um, help produce more productive relationships that are more efficient and effective uh, between uh, banks and fintechs. Very good. Uh, I saw um, John Glenn doing a lot this week to sort of promote this. John's been on the, the podcast a couple of times and talked about the sort of importance of fintech for the UK as well. I mean, this feels like a thing to sort of underline that again, just to kind of reaffirm the fact that, you know, fintech has obviously played such a large part in the the growth of, of London really sort of being that capital of it. And, uh, you know, things like this, that really sort of make sure that actually we've got a joined up approach of, of kind of supporting that and, you know, come what may from a Brexit perspective and everything else that's happening in the industry, obviously with uh, COVID and everything that's happening. can't believe I put Brexit over COVID then. That was a strange prioritisation, was it, in the world that we live in? But, uh, you know, it's important to continue to sort of reinforce what sort of made us great in these things. Um, there were a couple of sort of key principles that you, you sort of uh, pushing on in, in this. Can you sort of touch on those a little bit? Because I think they sort of talk to really where the emphasis is as well. Yeah, so there's five key uh, principles, really, to uh, the pledge. So uh, it's a voluntary pledge, but we've been asking banks to sign up to um, clear guidance on how their onboarding process works. We've been asking them to be really clear with fintechs on their progress through that process. So that might be a dashboard setting out key stages and decision points and the, the sort of due diligence they need to meet. And um, NatWest actually have already sort of uploaded their sort of one pager where you can sort of tick through and see see where you've got to on that chart. 
Um, they commit to having a named contact and to providing feedback, even if the fintech is ultimately unsuccessful in securing a partnership so that they can sort of go on to refine their, um, their product and service. And um, there's uh, also a sort of push to have um, a look at how we encourage good practice and improvement that's sort of across the banks. So not just the sort of innovation areas, but also with their procurement colleagues and then sort of sharing the best practice across the banks of how they're getting on with that. And the final uh, principle, number five, is that they will implement all of this within six months of signing the pledge. And it's I mean, it's no mean feat because, I mean, the bane of many a fintech life, as, as you said, is like procurement. Like, and actually, I think procurement departments from about two thousand and eight onwards were were essentially established to stop people procuring things rather than allowing people to procure things. Which it says a lot about the the sort of process there, doesn't it? In terms of that setup, but but actually doing this and doing this in that timescales is going to be super super interesting to see who who really can make that happen and move quickly. But it's good to see so many people sort of signing up to that. Uh, Jason, what do you think? Well, you know, just as you say, I think uh, the number of, of stories where you have a fintech that has a great meeting with one of the big banks, and then they're told that there'll be something happen, and they've got to go through to the next stage, and then a year later, they're still in some process or other. Meanwhile, they've been hemorrhaging money and, and trying to find more investment. You know, we, we have to find some way in which startups understand where they are in the process, and the pledge seems like a... Uh, you know, a good a good approach, but of course, devil's in the details, and it's easy to sign up to something and to you know to provide uh, a dashboard. Um, does it actually have an impact on that day to day relationship? I think it's going to be an interesting question. Yeah, so uh, we certainly we certainly like to think that uh, that it will do. And um, I mean, you mentioned um, John Glenn, the Treasury Minister, before, and um, I think we've really welcomed the support from the uh, from the Treasury. He was sort of very involved on Monday at the launch with uh, with the banks, and um, there's certainly a sort of a push that in in six months' time everybody will come back together um, with the EST as well to sort of really have a look at how this has been how this has been working. So uh, everybody's very enthusiastic so far, but. But uh, yes, we'll certainly uh, be sort of uh, coming back to that with them to check how everyone's getting on. Mm, it's interesting. I mean, we uh, fintech sort of burst onto the scene in such a B2C capacity. And actually, it's things like this that sort of evidence that really the the biggest players that are mostly being challenged are like big incumbent B2B players. You know, it's the it's the providers to the banks as much as the banks themselves that are being really sort of threatened by fintech. So, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, having that... Um, you know, a little bit more of a privileged line through some of those cues will be uh, will be helpful. What do you think, Anna? It's interesting. There have been so many things throughout the years. Uh, you know, I think of all the accelerators. Uh, I think even a big, I think Accenture at one point was going to partner with them and then to help them sell in. But there's been so many things. So, you know, I'm, I'm, it's interesting to see if this will work or if, if it's just, you know, the banks are so big and so complex that no matter what you do in the end, it's just going to be complicated to sell into them. Um, so it's definitely something, I mean, just the idea of having someone just knowing where to go, because you can see it on the website that already might seems like a, an improvement. The question is, will there be anyone on the other side who will be reading, <laughs> reading what you're sending them? 
And that named person on LinkedIn is suddenly going to get really popular, aren't they? Like they're going to be like the most popular person in like Barclays and HSBC and stuff. But uh, but it's yeah. Uh, well, I mean, hopefully we see a, a flurry of activity over the next. Uh, well, you know, after these six months, when if all the processes are in place, then uh, there'll be a flurry of activity to um, to sort of mark the change. So, sorry. I wasn't sure if that was a scratch or whether you were asking. Sorry, yeah, that was just in response to the flurry of activity. Um, Fine. <laughs> just to uh, just to add that um, we're uh, we're really encouragingly we actually had um, banks that weren't the initial signatories reach out already to sort of see where it is that they might be able to uh, sort of uh, learn more about how the banks uh, the other banks are adopting this and how they might involve it in their own um, processes. So uh, no promises, but watch this space. We're uh, trying to drive change as widely as we can. Very good. All right. Uh, next up, we have a story over on payments, which is that Nubank moves into investing by purchasing Easy Invest Broker. So in its efforts to grow into a full service financial services company, Nubank has come to the decision to buy broker Easy Invest. As it stands, retail clients in Brazil are moving from certifications of deposits to equity trading in country because of untraditionally low interest rates. The news comes as consumers in Brazil following a stay-at-home mandate uh, has now been put in place because of the pandemic, uh, are harnessing online banking platforms while steering very widely clear of public spaces such as bank offices. Um, interesting one. I mean, Nubank are another one of those ones which, I mean, they, they recently reached 25 million customers, which is just amazing. Like It just shows in different geos if you get the the positioning, you get the marketing, you get the product right, then these things accelerate in such an amazing way. But again, is this them parlaying success from one vertical that they're doing incredibly well into a, another one that they can actually start, to your point, Jason, earlier on, being a maybe a little bit more focused on the revenue that they can really return in terms of it? Uh, I, I think Brazil is a fascinating, fascinating market. You know, they have... Um, it's like 210 million people living there. I, I think it's uh, it's easy sometimes in the UK to look, you know, to look on the map uh, as to, uh, especially maps that have projections that are so skewed, and think, well, Brazil's not that big. 200 million people, um, together with the fact that actually financial inclusion is still a really big problem there. It's not like everyone has a bank account. So uh, I think the last time I looked at it was something like 30% of the country didn't. So um, so, so that obviously leads these leads to really big opportunities in order to bring financial products, especially digital financial products, to millions of people in order to change their lives. So the fact that uh, you know it sounds you know well, it is amazing that Newbank has you know twenty five thirty million customers, but still that's out of two hundred and ten million uh, you know potential customers. So it's got a and that's just part of Latin America. What about the rest of it? So it really is a great territory. And, and I think when you're looking at uh, places where new challenger banks have come along, like Brazil is, a, is just a really interesting area in that perspective, I think. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, there's got to be a pretty decent recipe you can draw up of like lots and lots of people without a bank, lots of people really frustrated with their bank. And, and, and actually, you know, those sort of five trigger points for, uh, you know, success in that space is, is really interesting. I mean, the idea of going into like investment doesn't sound like they're really focusing that the 25 million customers that they've got are in that uh, unbanked space. 
that sort of points to a little bit more like they're looking at balances in in their uh, their current accounts where they're like, well, we can help you do something with this. But uh, what do you think, Anna? I mean, a lot of people talk about New Bank as such a, a big success story. But w- what do you think? I, it's interesting. It feels like they want to get in on some of that Robin Hood action, right? Like everybody is, is trying to to do more of the trading. Um, I don't know the company they acquired well. If it's if it's more like a sort of um, it's more self directed as in your trading stock. If it's more like a trading stocks or or it's it's more long term investing. But still, it, it just feels along. It's it's going along those lines, right? They're they're seeing maybe what's happening in other markets and that it it's helped rev boost up revenues for for um, companies in, in this time where people were stuck at home and were, and were trading more. So maybe maybe that's one thing. Yeah, it's interesting that they're expanding um, into that area of all the areas they could expand into. And and they are already, they've, they've started expanding across um, South America. I think they, they'd had launched in Mexico. I'm not sure how that's going, but I always find it interesting when there's a geographic expansion with fintech. It's not always very successful and I think it's because a lot of fintech is built to solve a solution, a problem that some of the countries have in terms of like the quirks of that financial system. So something that makes sense here might not make sense in the US, might not make sense even just across the border, you know, between Italy and France. So I, I'm always I'm always asking people, has there been a very successful company that's not a remittance company, fintech company over the past few years that has gone and done really well in another geography or like really exploded? And it's really hard to find instances of that. You know, if you take away PayPal, but then again, they're like payments is slightly different. But you know, when it's you know core fintech like challenger banks or um, wealth management companies, like do they really translate across borders? So maybe they figured out. You know, might not make sense to go and try to be new bank in Mexico. Let's just be you know try to be Banco Bradesco in, in, in and try to conquer the whole of the market here. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things kind of happening out in Brazil in this sense. They be they seem to be no stranger, I guess, from a governmental perspective and actually from a regulatory perspective to really sort of opening up. It was uh, interesting to sort of read that actually they're they're planning a uh, Brazil is reporting that it will roll out a central bank digital currency, so CBDC by 2022. Uh, they're also planning to roll out uh, the nation's cryptocurrency will work in conjunction with a new instant payment systems called PIX, which is going to be rolled out by November 2020, whether that's been delayed with everything that's happening with COVID. But it really does feel like that you know, the, the fundamental fabric of what financial services is over in Brazil is being really sort of rewritten, which is uh, kind of interesting to see. What do you think, Jay? Well, no, I was just having a quick look around because it's an interesting point on the, okay, you've suddenly got this country with massive financial inclusion problems, which brings along the idea that there's a wealth inequality thing going on there. And a quick look on the, uh, on old Google says that the top uh, 5% of the country earn the same income as the rest of the 95% of the country. In fact, Br- Brazil's six richest men have the same wealth as the poorest 50% of the population. So it's interesting from a new, you know, from a new bank or from an any bank perspective, on one hand, you've got this mass of people you can deliver digital financial inclusion products to. On the other hand, you've got potentially 5% of the population that have ridiculous amounts of money and actually want to do something with it. So maybe this is a sort of 
you know, polarizing strategy either or that actually that's probably the place you're going to make all the money while actually helping with financial inclusion and uh, and people moving up the social strata might also be in there. Or at least that's my charitable take on it. But maybe you you do use some of the, you know, the rich fees in order to uh, to drive financial inclusion for the rest of the country. Hmm. What do you think, Anna? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I don't really know what their demographic is like if they are actually going for the people that don't have bank accounts. And I wonder, so I spent many years in Brazil, well, a lot of time in Brazil growing up, right? And I, my family was helping in a in a charity, in an orphanage. So I kind of am familiar with the people that would be the ones that um, are not included, but it was a different time, right? So I'm not sure if the same people that wouldn't be included now all have like smartphones and they would be the kind of target that, um, new bank can can go after maybe that's changed but it's just curious that f- i doubt that they might be the same people that can start trading and buying you know mutual funds or whatever it is so maybe it has been a calculation and it and again it's another one of my like fintech pet peeves is fintech does is fintech really 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 driving financial inclusion or is it just making life better for the people that you know i could opt to go with barclays or starling or monzo but you know and maybe in my life is a bit better now but it, you know, I'm not the person that had no bank account, you know, is it or am I able to buy an extra pair of shoes? But, you know, going back to the Klarna story, but, you know, who are We're gonna we keep really bringing going this after? back to shoes? Yes, yes. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about shoes. <laughs> Sorry, Jason, go on. Yeah, I was just looking at a I just looked up a press release that they had in 2017. It said that um only two and a half million Brazilians had opened a new bank card of the more than 13 million who had applied due to strict credit checks. But actually, the CEO at the time, I don't know if he's still the CEO, said that he hoped accounts would serve some of the roughly 60 million Brazilians, around 30% of the population, who don't have a bank account. So, yeah, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe is that a just... Uh, you know, virtue signaling press release, or given that 30 million applied and they gave out two and a half million accounts, how, how strict are they being and where do they fit in that uh, in that spectrum? Interesting yeah. question. What do you think, Victoria? Yeah, so um, I was just sort of thinking in terms of the um, central bank digital currency as well, it's, uh, and I'm not saying they're looking to replace cash, but it's a sort of interesting development if you think that the sort of um, the sort of demographics that we've just been talking about normally tend to have quite a significant um, amount of a cash-based economy. So it's sort of interesting that they sort of prioritised, and that would be quite internationally leading, I think, to kind of say we're going to do it and we're going to do it soon, um, to sort of say that how can we digitise payments further? So so uh, an interesting one to watch as it evolves, I think. Yeah, I think um, I think they've got very high rates of money laundering, very high rates of sort of fraudulent behaviour with things in that sense. So actually a digital currency in that sense makes a great deal of sense to try and digitise those things and try and sort of move those things out. Obviously, we've seen similar plays in places like India, haven't we, in terms of sort of almost creating a, a digital capability to try and remove some of those things. But, uh, you know, fraudsters are always pretty good at being innovative. So I'm sure they'll find a way of continuing their uh, their merry ways. But, uh, okay, moving on, we have a story over on CNBC. And this is that raises new plans for global expansion with a youth wealth management 
payment platform. So we've kind of gone from tech companies buying transportation companies to tech companies buying wealth management platforms, which is interesting. So uh, after applying to become a regulated bank in Singapore, gaming hardware firm Razer is now considering a similar move in Europe and the US, as well as expanding its banking business across Southeast Asia, India, and Latin America. Razer, a well-known brand in the competitive esports scene, has been pushing deeper into financial services with its own virtual credit for gamers and digital payments divisions. Razer plans to build the world's first youth bank to meet a need that hasn't been met by other products that are aiming at that millennial segment. Like many gaming uh, companies, Razer has flourished this year as, well, nobody else can pretty much do anything else other than sit at your house and game, I guess, at that stage, which probably indicates why they've been successful. But uh, uh, do you know what? I always find Razer's laptops a bit fiddly, if I'm not going to lie. I know if Simon was on the show, he's a massive fan of them and, and loves it. Uh, and I had the CTO of uh, Razer Fintech on the breakfast show uh, about two months ago. Uh, and they are doing some amazingly smart things and actually seem to be having uh, a really significant impact in terms of the amount of people that they are getting to use their payment pieces. But what do you think, Jason? Uh, like laptop makers getting into uh, sort of financial services. I mean, it seems to work out all right for Apple, doesn't it? I think this is crazy. Like Razer make great keyboards, they make mice, they make gaming laptops, and they've moved into sort of the esports and the, you know, buy some tokens in order to spend on PUBG. And they're growing in that thing. Wealth management, like that is a, that's a big leap. That is seriously a big leap. So I don't know, like I, I, I know that they've sort of, ultimately, when you look at their homepage, their webpage, I'm like, do they do a lot of things that I don't know? But no, I mean, they make laptops and mice and keyboards with LEDs and you know they've got a good you know a really strong brand around that and but wealth management like I just find that crazy I mean can can they start doing like wealth management of digital assets do you know like actually if you can start telling me that that skin I buy on like you know PUBG actually has retained some sort of value to it then I'm way more likely to give my son some money to spend on those things. You know, like, is that, you're shaking your head. So I, I'm not expecting any money back from that. Is that what you're telling me? I, I just want to hear what Anna thinks about this. Yes, because I'm because I'm never cynical. So I think, again, it's just more of the Robin Hood moment, right? Like, if you think about it, this is going to really not get me any fans, but, um, I, you know, a lot of the stock trading that's happening now on Robinhood is kind of like gaming, right? It feels like gaming. That's the whole point. That's why they're successful. It's because it's so easy and everybody thinks, including my husband, thinks that they're like the an investing genius and they're Warren Buffett, right? Because they're just like, it's so easy. Like, that's the whole point. And it's just made like gaming. You get like the confetti and everything. So maybe they're seeing that and maybe it's not really wealth management that they're going after. They're just going after trading because it's it's quite profitable, right? So maybe maybe that's one thing. And then again, I was reading the story and again, like there's this thing about financial inclusion and we're going to like, people don't have bank accounts. And I'm wondering, will they actually go for people that don't have bank accounts or they'll realize that people that don't have bank accounts aren't make don't really make you money. And so, you know what, I'll just sell them a computer and that's, that's done, you know? I, I wonder how much... I'm not questioning people's intentions, but I wonder how much, you know, you dream about doing financial inclusion and then you don't not really sure what you're doing and then you don't do that. Or or even if I want to be extra cynical, you're just using the financial inclusion card to to win some brownie points with, with regulators and you whoever you have to ask authorization from. I think that's a fascinating angle. And I think the gaming versus gambling thing, you know, the the Robin Hood investor 
is someone who sports bets and, you know, bets on the halftime score in the Super Bowl. Oh, and I'll buy a few Facebook shares. And um, when we were doing some work over in Hong Kong and we were doing sort of interviews with people on the street, like they, you would talk to them, they go, oh, well, we're, you know, we're pretty sophisticated financially in Hong Kong. And everyone would tell you that. And you'd say, well, what does that mean? And you say, well, we do invest. It's like, well, what's your investment portfolio like? And it's, they're all individual shares. Like everyone just buys and like bets on companies and then goes and tells their friends. Uh, and then that becomes a thing. So from that angle, maybe you're right. You know, maybe this is a, uh, a gaming gambling sort of angle rather than a, a financial services, which seems too far off um, piece, especially over in, in Asia. Yeah, I mean, the, the sad part about that, though, is, I mean, investment, you generally invest money with some certainty of your returns. I mean, my dad always used to say, don't gamble with money you can't afford to lose, right? So, and actually like, you know, that's the worrying thing, isn't it? That if people are putting things into high risk setups or they're, you know, they're deeming investment in shares, not as a um, uh, a buy and forget, you know, and come back in five years time thing, but on a, you know, that incremental sort of, I'm going to be monitoring this every week, like fantasy football or something, then that's going to lead to some really, you know, really tough psychological problems for a lot of people when you know the market tanks and you've lost 40,000 and like you know like that's that's gonna be a real you, a challenge you'll be, obviously. Be, you'll be able to buy some great skins for your virtual wallet though <laughs> that's true that's true that'll make me a little bit a little bit happier like a little cat or something but Victoria what do you think yeah, I think it'll be interesting to sort of see who they end up um, sort of defining as the as the youth, because uh, I suppose if you sort of look at Gen Z, maybe they'd have sort of greater brand association, maybe they'd be more likely uh, to sort of get higher customer acquisition in terms of numbers. But in terms of if it's really looking at wealth management, that's still probably got to be millennials, right? But how many of them are still on their Xbox you know I know my husband would like to be on his Xbox but by the time you sort of got your your job and your kids and everything you're probably starting to wane maybe in those practices so uh, I just think the route to profitability with that younger generation would take longer so it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. It's true those damn responsibilities catch up with you don't they they really do uh, I mean it is a, it is an interesting one as well because I mean not not necessarily with with Razor but actually if you look at Apple and to, to sort of evidence your point Anna as well it's like Apple came out with a credit card to help people not get into debt. And it's like, you you know, you can dress these things up in a marketing sense that is like, you know, we're here to do good and like help the world. But it's like also buy our aluminium things, which I do like very gratefully because they're lovely. But at the same time, it's like actually you can't say one thing and set up your products in a very different way. Okay, uh, we're going to have to move on, though. I think we could probably keep talking about these ones for, for quite some time. But uh, there's a bunch of other stories that we were not going to be able to, to cover uh, as part of the show. But uh, Jason, do you want to start us with the, the first one? Sure. So German fintech in trouble. Credit tech has filed for bankruptcy. Well, actually, they're not called Credit Tech anymore. Monido, an online lender that's formerly known as Credit Tech, which was a pioneer of the German fintech market, has slipped into bankruptcy, unfortunately. A strategic reboot was needed in March 2020 as the company changed its name to Monido and also switched direction to focus on algorithmic powered loans and a greater use of machine learning in its underwriting process. Online lenders were especially hit hard by new laws passed in the European states as a result of the pandemic, which allowed borrowers to postpone their repayments. And the new law was adopted in Spain and Poland, which are two of Menido's key markets. So one argument is that the pandemic is a contributing factor to bankruptcy. 
But another would be that the company never got its its miracle technology to the level that it could make it into a profitable business and, and must have struggled to gain more funding. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? I remember sitting down with somebody over a, a drink uh, who worked there and going, them going, yeah, we've got these 400 data points we use with all of these things. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, but how is that really sort of developing forwards? And it, I mean, it turns out that a lot of that was, they were really sort of struggling with, but uh, all right, next up, we have that Snoop accelerates to over a hundred thousand downloads in less than five months and prepares for crowdfunding. Rather than hearing from me on this one, why don't we hear from their CEO, John Natazilla. We launched the business during lockdown and Snoop has now been downloaded over a hundred thousand times in just less than five months. I feel this is a brilliant result for the team and we're delighted with attraction in such a short period of time. What's more, I'm extremely proud that Snoop has been named as one of the top 50 fintechs in Europe. That's based on our relevance to the lives of people and that's really important to us. We're building an app that's fit for purpose and really fit for our times and one that crucially puts people in control of their data, but also helps them save some serious money. Our purpose is really clear at Snoop, and that is to make everyone better off. Our vision is to help our customers spend, save, and live smarter. To build on the early success and momentum, we're now going to play to the crowd and kick off our very own crowdfund on the Cedars platform this week. We will give the Snoop Troop first dibs in that, and we want our customers to be able to share in the success of the business. Very good. Uh, do you know what? I really like Snoop. I, I feel like they, they're one of the few companies in this sort of open banking bit that are really adding a lot of value right now. They seem to have got their brand really well positioned. They're adding real value. They've actually saved me a bit of money as well, which is good. But uh, it kind of feels like they're actually doing something. So it's great to see them being successful. On to the next one, though, Jason. Goldman Sachs is taking what it learned from a $100 million acquisition to upgrade the Marcus app. So Goldman Sachs has just released a first version of a personal finance management tool that gives customers of its Marcus retail brand a top-down view of all of their financial accounts, as well as insights into spending and a monthly snapshot of their budget. The feature, called Marcus Insights, is the latest step that Goldman is taking into the financial lives of ordinary consumers. There's one drawback, though. Customers won't be able to link up with the Apple card, despite the fact that Goldman is the bank behind that product. And that's because Apple doesn't share user data with Goldman beyond what's needed to operate the card. Marcus's head of product uh, is Adam Dell, who sold his startup Clarity Money to Goldman Sachs for $100 million when he came on board. So a nice sort of aqua hire there. And, but currently, both are running in tandem, supported by Goldman Sachs, but the, and there's some overlap in their capabilities. Goldman's also planning on launching a digital checking account and an investing service, both due to launch next year. Very good. Uh, next up, there is a story that is Santander spins out fintech venture capital arm. So Santander spins out its 400 million fintech venture arm capital, uh, which is now called Muro Capital. Santander, the Spanish multinational banking giant, is announcing that its fintech venture arms named Muro Capital is to be spun out and run more autonomously. I mean, that's a pretty good thing. I mean, there's always been this slight, you know, is the investment strategic? Are you doing it only because you'll use it? Are you now investing because it's str like strategically for returns? Um, but Manuel Silva Martinez, who uh, runs the fund, uh, had said that Mura will deploy a bolder investment strategy that may involve investing in perceived competitors, which sounds super duper interesting. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in this one. Uh, I think we'll get Manuel on in a couple of weeks to talk about what he's up to. 
And finally, I have to say this was a really interesting, like I always loved the stories that pop up on the 11FS Slack channel and we're just like, what is going on here? Uh, so finally, we have a story over on the BBC, which is Microsoft's underwater data center resurfaces after two years. So two years ago, Microsoft sank a data center in, off the coast of Orkney. The data center has now been retrieved from the ocean floor and Microsoft researchers are assessing how it has performed. Uh, their first conclusion is that the cylinder packed with servers had a lower failure rate than conventional data centers, and just eight out of the 855 servers that were on board had failed. Orkney was chosen for the trial by Microsoft, particularly because it was a center for renewable energy research uh, in place where a climate was temperate, I think they mean cold, uh, and the idea was that the cost of cooling computers would be much lower if they were underwater. I mean, this is a really interesting one, really, isn't it? In a, in a world where we're becoming much more difficult to have space for all of these things, uh, and actually in a place where you know cloud computing is taking off in, in much more significant ways, therefore data centers are going to be fewer and far between, but when we have them, they're going to be gigantic. Then sticking them on the floor of the sea probably seems like a good idea, doesn't it? Uh, what do you think, Jason? Yeah, I, I look this up because it's like you imagine a data center and you think, how do you put that on, on the sea? And basically, they took a, a giant thing the size of a shipping container uh, that, that was like a big barrel, and they put servers inside and everything else, and then just basically sunk it off the coast uh, with with all of the power and the um, the network connectivity connected to it. Uh, and I guess it, it fights against the, the typical... Um, Economic problems running a data center, actually calling it is a key part of that and being close to power supply is a key part of it. So I actually had a friend who sort of built data centers quite a few years ago, and they would always look for, you know, for cities on the coast next to a hydroelectric dam or, you know, a giant power station that meant that they could use seawater to cool it and the spare power from the power station in order to run the thing. So I guess, you know, Orkney's You've got plenty of wind, you've got plenty of power there, you've got the sea in order to cool it. And it's one of those things as to, you know, everything is um, is moving to the data center. So how do you make the data centers as, as cost effective to run as possible? And so you start to look for these real, really interesting angles as to close to power stations, close to geo and, um, and renewable power, and also, um, you know, easy to cool. And, and I guess this is a, a novel solution. Mm, it's interesting. I mean, this feels like it's almost certainly going to be like the opening sequence to a James Bond movie at some point, right? It's going to be like, you know, to steal your data at this point, people need scuba gear, not just like good cyber sort of criminals, don't they? But uh, Victoria, what do you think? Well, my comment just can't follow that, I think. <laughs> I've uh, got this picture now of the, the film. But um, I, I think it's um, it's interesting that it's not just about cost efficiency, right? It's about carbon reduction. And if you think we've all spent years in offices thinking about how kind of how going paperless and using our laptops and email more is, uh, is the thing that's sort of saving the planet. But as as the data centers increasingly sort of need more power and more there's more data being captured then actually thinking about how that part of um of the sort of the workplace and the economy can um, reduce carbon as well feels really important so um it sounds good let's see more of it what do you think anna is this going to catch on or are we suddenly going to be chucking computers into the sea willy-nilly I really never thought I would ever have to comment on something like this, but um, I'm just wondering, I, I guess, obviously, overall, it's better for the environment, but I'm wondering 
what happens to like the, the sea, right? The fish. What if we all start having uh, like all data centers are in underwater? Like, what does it mean for like that environment? It's a very like uh, answer by someone who knows nothing about the topic clearly. But I'm just thinking about the fish. Maybe. I mean, dolphins are pretty intelligent, right? If we can train them up as Microsoft engineers at this stage, <laughs> then I think we've got a whole different thing, you know. But uh, it's interesting. We've got Elon Musk trying to put uh, the internet into space, I believe, with satellites, isn't he? We've got Google doing pieces to put them in balloons and fly internet so it's everywhere. And we've got Microsoft putting data centers under the sea. Like it really does feel like a, does feel like a world that uh, at least we have lots to talk about, don't we, at that stage, which is good. But uh, all right, guys, I'm afraid that's going to wrap up today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where can people learn a little bit more about you, Victoria? Uh, so you can find out more about the fintech pledge and the fintech delivery panel on tech nation's website and uh, if you want to follow any updates and hear about what we're up to on twitter you can uh, find more on at policy very good uh anna where can people find out more about you and your new european adventures so you can read my stories on reuters.com and then you can follow me on twitter where i post things about stories jason where can people learn more about you uh, you can find me building banks and new propositions around the world uh, at 11fs.com and on Twitter at Jason Bates. Very good. And as for me, you can find me over on LinkedIn. A thank you also to Alex from Klarna and John from Snoop. Uh, for their sound bites in coming onto the show. And thank you for you guys for listening. If you do like what you've heard, then please subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review over on iTunes. It is really, really helpful for other people to find the podcast as well. As always, if you have any comments or you want to join in the conversation, just hit us up on email at podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Goodbye.